I'm glad to be with you guys this morning. Josh said I work for, uh, by the way, I practiced that all week, Josh said, and I just botched it up. So as Josh mentioned, uh, Service Sojourn Network, I'll be at the welcome uh, you, you thing out there in between services to talk, talk with you. Anything you want to know about Sojourn Network and what we do to help plant thriving churches across the U.S., uh, we have about 80 churches in the network. Josh said over 100, which I always round up to, so I'm happy, happy you rounded up. But it's around 80 churches in about 28 states right now. Uh, one of the things I get to do is uh, often talk with young men and women desiring to go into ministry, plant churches. And so my father-in-law took that opportunity about a year ago when he brought some students from his college ministry in Texas to a conference here in Louisville. And so last spring, he invited my wife and I to share really anything we wanted to with this group of 10 or 12 college students. And so I took the opportunity, I feel like it was ripe as I was beginning to think about what I might say, uh, to kind of really lay into these college students. I was, I was about 10 or 12 years out of college, right, at the time. And so this is going to be a great opportunity, I thought, for me to share some, some grown-up wisdom with these college kids. Stuff like, the stuff that came immediately to my mind was, you know, get off your phone, get a job, any job, move out of your parents' house, you can't change the world on social media, you think your life is hard now, just wait, your dreams are about to be crushed and your life's about to get boring and small and insignificant. So I didn't say any of that uh, exactly like that because I talked with my wife first. Um, and I spent some time actually thinking and praying about what I might share with these college students. And, and so as I pondered the last 10 or 15 years of my life, um, one word really kept coming to mind in preparation for this time with these students at my church um, and at our home. And that was the word narrow, the word narrow. There's a ton of uses for this word, right? But the two definitions I had in mind were to decrease in breadth and to, to limit or restrict. And so I told them first that if their life was anything like mine and the lives of people I know, they should expect it to narrow, right? Life will become more limited. It'll, it'll decrease in breadth or scope. It'll move from, from big, broad possibilities and dreams to, to perhaps delayed or deferred dreams. It'll move from a big calling where you can do anything to a more narrow, refined calling where you can't do everything. You can do a couple things well. From, from many possibilities to just a few that don't quite seem as glamorous or as world-changing initially. And I think this principle is true for all humanity, right? Christians and non-Christians. Your life will narrow because you are human. It will narrow to a particular people in a particular place with particular problems. All right, so that's the first thing I told them. Second, I told them that the narrowing is actually a good thing because eventually it will lead to your flourishing, to a sort of uh, broadening, right? The narrowing will lead to a broadening. I think of it like an hourglass where, where much sand goes in, but it has to all go through the middle before it expands to the bottom again. And I think our lives are shaped like that, again, for all humanity, Christians, non-Christians. As we narrow in life and as we, we seek smaller opportunities, our life actually begins to, to flourish a little bit more. Narrowing is a good thing. So we see this with jobs, for example. It's, it's better to be all in with one job and get really good at that one job and to flourish in it than to try to do a ton of different jobs, right? It's better to say yes to one friend than to say yes to a thousand friends on Facebook, is it not? Better to go deep with one than shallow with the many. And so this theme, again, is for all humanity. Narrowing happens, and narrowing is a good thing. But for Christians, there's one more thing that I began to ponder, and a theme emerged. This theme of narrow paths emerged. So for Christians, 
when we allow God to narrow our lives, he will begin to broaden them again. But it's going to look a little different than the world's way of broadening, right? So by increasing, for example, our joy, we don't always have the job success that we want. By increasing our peace, we don't always get to increase our pocketbooks. But by preparing us for eternity and not just a quick escape from pain, God is doing many things to narrow our lives in order to broaden them according to his plan for his namesake, for our good and for the good of others. These are the narrow paths. And so what I want to show us today from Psalm 23 is this idea of the narrow path as a metaphor for the specific circumstances and journeys we take in this life, both tragic and redemptive, that are under God's control that lead us to become more mature followers of Jesus. We'll be introduced to some language, paths of righteousness in verse 3 of Psalm 23, and I want to use that as this idea of the narrow path, some scriptural language, because what I, what I try to do with these students is as a theme emerged to share with them, I wanted to make sure it was found also in God's Word, all right? So we'll look at a few biblical examples. I'll share some ways this theme has worked out in my own life, and then we'll end with our hope and our help for the narrow paths of life found, of course, in Jesus. So turn to Psalm 23, and as you do, let me pray and ask God's help. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this theme as it emerges in your scriptures. Father, we need your help this morning. Speak, your servants are listening. Soften hearts, open minds, and ears to hear your word this morning. Speak clearly through me for your name's sake, for your glory, and for the good of these people. Your church. Amen. All right, so... Let me read the first three verses of Psalm 23, and then we'll jump in. These are very familiar verses. Hear them afresh this morning. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Here's the phrase this morning. He leads me in paths of righteousness, or the right paths, for his namesake. This is the word of the Lord. And so, like I said, anytime we identify a theme outside the scriptures, we want to come back to the scriptures with them open to examine them. The scriptures, of course, is for us as Christians, these are our final authority, the North Star of our lives, the, the anchor point that stabilizes life in an unstable world. And so first thing we want to see is this theme biblical, this idea of the narrow pass, that God taking us down a narrowing journey down narrow paths in our lives for his good, for his glory, and for our joy. And so I would say, yes, it is. And so we'll notice that narrow isn't in this passage. The verses I just read, you're not going to see the word narrow. But I think it's implied in the phrase, paths of righteousness, right? And so I want to distinguish between two concepts that are related. One that you just read about and uh, heard preached in the Sermon on the Mount that you guys have been working through with Lyle and other pastors here. And that's these two concepts. One is the narrow door or the gate of salvation. And the second concept is the idea of these narrow paths or the paths of righteousness, which describe a more long-term path of maturity and ongoing transformation. So the narrow gate that we go in once and for all is the gate of salvation, right? The narrow paths are this ongoing journey where we become more like Jesus. That's called sanctification. Salvation once and for all, sanctification, 
ongoing journey that's spirit-led, marked by our, our continual growth, right? So John 10, 9, and Matthew 7, 13, and 14 both describe the way uh, this narrow door, the first way, right? And so you're going to see John 10, 9 there. I am the door, Jesus says. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He'll go out and come in and find pasture. Again, in Matthew 7, 13, and 14, we read this. Enter by the narrow gate. So there's the gate of salvation. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. That is, that is the ongoing way of life right there, that part of the, the, that part of the verse, right? And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, that's the salvation gate, and the way is hard, that's the sanctification path, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So you see what's going on here. In each of these passages, uh, Jesus is declaring and teaching his followers that the way, the door, gate, or path to salvation is through Jesus alone, right? As opposed to any other path or door. This is often called the exclusivity path of Christianity, right? The narrow door, we meet Jesus as our Savior for our sins, our substitute who died in our place, and as the sacrifice once and for all that appeased the just wrath of God for sin and rebellion, right? No other religion promises this kind of exclusivity, and that's why the narrow door of salvation is both really hard, if you find it, but it's also really good news, right? Because we have a Savior, right? We have a substitute. We have a sacrifice. But if you look again at Matthew 7, 13 and 14, I think it's going to be on the screen, we'll see that this narrow gate is also the entry point into a new journey along these narrow paths, right? And so look at the, the second part of that. For the gate is narrow, salvation again, and the way is hard. The narrow way is hard. That leads to what? Life. The narrow gate and the narrow way are related, but they're two different Concepts. So the movement here from the gate into the narrow path, into the narrow way, is something that only Jesus can help do, and then it's something that Jesus helps finish because we meet Jesus not just as a sacrifice and as a substitute and as our Savior, we meet him as our shepherd. And so on the narrow path, we begin a new journey with Jesus as our, as our good shepherd. Right? Look back at John 10, 9. There's one more thing I want to point out here is, is this. I am the door. Jesus says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So what's interesting here is another concept is that Jesus promises that through the narrow door of salvation, we also enter into broad pasture. This idea of a place of safety, of security, of of spaciousness and freedom, and eventually to eternal life itself. So, So which is it? Does salvation through the narrow gate lead to this broad pasture or does it lead to the narrow paths? And I would say if we combine both of these passages, it's actually yes to both, right? We enter in and we find this beautiful broad pasture, this freedom. We just sang about this freedom that we have when we go through the narrow gate of salvation. It's one of the joys of being Christians. And yet at the same time, there's always this tension that the good shepherd says, hey, you're not, you're not exactly like how I want you to be, how I made you to be. So I'm going to take you also down narrow paths, to help you grow, to teach you, to train you, to test you, to sharpen you, to be more like my son for eternity. You see what's happening here? And so what we want to do this morning is, is we want to see first, I just want to break down these two words, narrow path, and then I'm going to drop into uh, some ways that God has done this through the good shepherd, Jesus, in my own life. And so if we look at these two words, narrow and path, look first at narrow. So narrow describes some risk, some inherent danger 
on these paths, right? They're narrow for a reason. They're not usually the easiest paths to walk or hide. Listen to how one pastor defines narrow, and this is going to be on your screen, I believe. The word, the word narrow comes from a Greek verb, which means to, to press uh, or to crush as a worker and a vineyard might crush grapes, or a crowd of people might press against one another. In the passive tense, the verb also means to experience trouble, difficulty, or affliction. So, th- so there's, our, there's our modifier of the word pass. So we have this narrowing that's happening. You see the last three verbs, trouble, difficulty, or affliction. This, this narrowing, we can feel pressed in at times as believers. And so the path then, this pastor goes on to describe the, the word way or the word path as translated from the Greek noun, which literally denotes a, a natural road or a traveled way, like a hiking path. Metaphorically, it refers to a way of life, a course of conduct, or a way of thinking. The word is actually used six times in the book of Acts as a synonym for Christianity itself, the way, right? Thus, we quickly discover that the Christian faith is more than a one-time decision to accept Christ. It's an enduring faith which alters the very course of one's life. Right? So, so narrow and path together, you can see that there's a theme, an idea that becomes rather obvious, right? A narrow trail heads one way, this is God's will for us, and it's marked by some risks, some difficulties, some pain. That's the narrow path in our life. And we have many narrow paths, I would argue, that the Lord will take us down from the time we go through the narrow gate until the time we meet him in eternity. Many narrow paths. Um, currently, right now, I'm in the middle of training for a hike through the Grand Canyon with uh, three other friends of mine. They're actually all pastors in Sojourn Network. We're going to go in September uh, to hike. This is going to be one of the trails that we hike. And uh, so I'm in the middle of training. I'm taking a break because I pulled my hamstring and my IT band has issues. And so I'm getting, I'm getting older. Uh, so I'm actually on a two-week hiatus. But we've been studying. We've been reading a lot about this 45-mile hike over a five-day span. And we're preparing ourselves for the journey. And so we've been looking at pictures like this where we know the paths are going to, to narrow. And so as we look at this picture, notice a couple of things. One, this path is pretty well marked. It's packed down. The rangers in the Grand Canyon do a great job, but they also limit the amount of hikers that can go in. So even though 40,000 hikers will apply this summer, only 15,000 will be accepted to go hike this trail. So not that many people hike it, but enough hike it that it's well marked. What's not in this picture is the second thing. These trails lead eventually to places of refuge, to restoration, to quiet literal waters where we can restore ourselves. And so we pick back up in this idea of Psalm 23, 1 through 3, that the well-marked paths will lead to nourishment, right? They are well-marked for a reason. I love one translation of Psalm 23, 3 that says, he leads us down well marked paths. You see, then and now, the righteous paths are well marked. They're not hard to find, but few choose to go down them. You can find examples right now. Pastor Lyle, Pastor Josh, their spouses, the pastors here, uh, faithful deacons that serve week in and week out, the musicians. There are men and women here that are helping us keep the paths of Christian faithfulness well marked by their lives. You're about to dive into the story of Daniel. Next week, right? We're going to read about a man in Daniel that is helping us with these well-marked paths. A man who, by his life and actions and faith, helped mark the path for us. Many men and women throughout church history have done this. The paths 
are well marked, but also the paths lead eventually to quiet waters. The Good Shepherd's not going to just take us down narrow paths forever and not bring us to a, a, a nice place of refuge, of renewal, right? When we get down there, we have an immediate descent on day one that's going to go from uh, the top of the rim down to the bottom. It's a seven and a half mile hike, 45 um, 4,500 feet of a descent. And at the bottom is this lodge that's waiting for us that has steak and lemonade. I mean, honestly, I've never had that combo, but at that point, I really won't care, right? The next day is a 12-mile hike, and we'll get to another place where we'll set up camp, and there's going to be a stream, a waterfall nearby, and we're going to go fly fishing. You see what's happening? These narrow paths, yeah, they're going to be hard, but at the other end of them, there is quiet waters. There is the restoration of our bodies. And spiritually, the Good Shepherd knows we need both a well-marked path and we need a place to end up, to rest sometimes. And yet in the middle, he's going to take us down these narrow paths. So I want to give you two paths that I feel like the Lord, our Good Shepherd, has taken me down over the past 10 to 12 years. All right? And as, as we go through these, I don't expect that all of them will be paths that you've gone down. I expect that it will start stirring your imagination, though, on paths that you have been down. So you can see that, that God was with you through Jesus. There are paths that you may be on now. There are also paths that you will go down tomorrow or next month or next year that we don't know. But I promise you, these paths are for our good. And for, as we read in verse 3, for his name's sake. They're for God's glory. So let God be glorified in the paths that you're, that you're taking right now. And remember, they're for your good. So here's the first path. The path of personal, specific, deep love. The path of personal, specific, deep love. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The entire Bible could be summed up in that verse, right? And then love your what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we read this, the two great commands, right? Uh, very simple as we read them, very difficult in theory and in practice, right? And so one way I believe God has taught me and teaches all of us to live out the great command is that he helps us get really specific. He will put specific people in our life to teach us to love neighbor so that neighbor moves from an abstract concept to a particular person, right? And when that happens, love gets specific. Life gets harder, but love and life gets sweeter and deeper at the same time. Do you hear that? So when love gets specific, it's going to be sweeter eventually, but in the short run, loving specific people and loving a specific God, not an abstract God, is going to be hard and difficult and will require a lot of acute pain for a lot of long-term peace and joy. And so one way he did this with me was with my beautiful wife. And so before and after I got married, I remembered uh, doing two things as I prepared for marriage. One, I read a lot of books about marriage. And two, I would just imagine uh, regularly what my wife one day would look like right? So this idea of, okay, forming an, a, a mental image of a spouse coupled with reading about other uh, men and women who had gotten married helped form this uh, really huge uh, kind of idealized image of marriage and of my spouse. 
And here's what happened. My wife didn't really live up to this gigantic idealized image that I had created. And she was nothing like the women I was reading about in these marriage books. And I wasn't quite ready to make the shift to loving a particular person. So you can imagine the scenarios. I had no idea who she really was. I was loving an abstract version of a wife, but not actually loving my wife. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what marriage was supposed to be like. And so I had a hard time loving her, and and probably more so, not probably, definitely more so, she had a harder time loving me. Who wants to love a person that doesn't really love them specifically, but is loving like a version of them that they're thinking about all the time, right? And so I was sitting regularly in the first three, four, five years of my marriage in this lonely space between an abstract general love for a wife and an actual specific love for my wife. And in this dark place, all kinds of heart and soul bacteria find fertile conditions for growth. Cynicism, frustration, anger, disillusionment, and a disease I refer to as staring up at the ceiling late at night. Just sitting there going, is this what life is supposed to be like? This is really, really, really hard. And this is not what I signed up for. And one day I remember as I was preparing mentally to blame my wife for all these these heart diseases, I came to Ephesians 5, 28 and 29. And it says this, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own body, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Notice two things. That for husbands, our primary command in the scriptures is not to lead our wives. It is to love our wives. I had been trying to lead and get it right for about the first four or five years of our marriage. And I had not done the primary command in scriptures, which is to love our wives. Love our wife, more particularly. The second thing are these two words, nourish and cherish. I don't think I ever had asked my wife in our first four or five years, how can I nourish and cherish you? And so I went to my wife and I said, how can I nourish and cherish you? Or what would it look like for me to nourish and cherish you? And I, I said, please be specific, like the, the outside of the Pop-Tart box. If you ever watch, you know, read that, it's like, open the Pop-Tart, put it in the toaster, take it out, be careful it's hot, put it on a plate, enjoy. It's like, that's really helpful for me. I can follow those steps. Uh, but that's what we need sometimes in this situation with our wives, right? And a lot of the narrow paths, we need to get specific so we know, hey, break it down for me. And so we literally just made two columns on a piece of paper, and she just began kind of going, okay, well, I think this and this and this and this and this. And so gradually and impatiently and painfully, I began to just listen to her answers and then apply the things that she told me and repent of all the ways that I tried to love some other woman and not the one right in front of me. I think where God was and is still leading me on this narrow path this sanctifying path, is he was actually teaching me how to receive his personal specific love so that in turn I could give specific, personal, deep love. Does that make sense? Isn't it the heartbeat of, of a, a, a verse I know we've all heard, First John four nineteen? We love, we love, why? Because he first loved us. 
We love because he first loved us. And so the risk of loving abstractly men and women in this room is, is that you don't really love. You live a loveless life. To love in the abstract is not love. It may be empathy, but it's not love. But the reward of loving specifically is that you enjoy a deep relationship with the Lord who created you and loves you and with other people he's put right around your life. And so what would be different in our lives if we knew that Jesus, our good shepherd, loves us specifically? He leads me down paths of righteousness. Notice all the first person words in this psalm in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. He doesn't shift to the second person until uh, later in the psalm, but this, this is a very personal song. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Make it personal to you in this moment. Who is God calling you to love in this way? They're probably closer than you realize. Are you allowing the good shepherd to teach you to love him and others more deeply? Or have you become hard-hearted wanting only to receive love, perhaps just playing the victim, and not taking responsibility to learn to love the people that God's actually put in your life? Just ponder that. Ponder that this week. And so that is one of the first paths the Lord has taken me down, and I'm still on this path. There's a long way to go on this path, right? Here's the second path. Again, I just want you to stir your imaginations um, with these. The second path is a path toward awareness and ownership of my specific story, struggles, and sin. The path to ownership and awareness of my story my specific story, my, my specific struggles, and my specific sin. So about four years ago, these same three men that I'm going to go hiking with this fall, we went on a camping trip, and they gave me one of the most generous gifts I'd ever received. They said, hey, for two nights, we want to just listen to your story. We're going to go hiking during the day, and at night, we just want to listen to your story around the campfire. And so they took two nights, about two or three hours each night, and I started from birth all the way through. And it was one of the most gracious gifts because they just listened. They, they asked questions, but they didn't speak into any of it. And so after the second night, six hours in to this story, themes and patterns emerged in my life, which led to greater awareness of how these, these themes had led to patterns and ways of relating to the people in my life now and ways of relating to the Lord. Some good, many bad. And so we own our stories when we start to talk about them, acknowledging our reality and seeing God's presence in every nook and cranny of our story. As we tell it and we own it and we grow an awareness of where we've come from, soft, uh, soften, hard edges are softened, right? We learn to mourn and we learn to grieve and we learn to repent. We learn wisdom so we don't repeat generational or personal patterns from our stories. And so I had to learn just, just to tell my story and realize God is sovereign over it, the triumphs and the tragedies, the twists and the turns. And as we tell and own our stories, a second thing will emerge. Struggles will emerge. So struggles are, are part of our story. They are not sin. They're just things that we deal with. They're personality quirks or they're things that just make us ordinary, human, and imperfect. They're things that often frustrate people. Idiosyncrasies is another word for them. Struggles are just things that we have to live with as a result of being in a fallen world or that flow out of our stories. 
All right? And so for me, one example is that I just regularly struggle with like a low-grade melancholy, right? And so again, melancholy isn't a, a sin, um, and I didn't really know I struggled with this until I just began telling my story. And so my wife and I now just call this thing the funk, right? So uh, we just, okay, I'm just, I'm experiencing the funk uh, right now. And we know we, we kind of have a grid for it. We know some of the triggers for it. We know what it feels like to be in it. We know how I relate when I am feeling this way. We know bad ways of, I can relate in the, in the middle of this melancholy, and we know ways that I can step into life in a more healthy way by not minimizing it or maximizing it. This is, a, this is a struggle. And so with my kids now, instead of escaping to the bedroom and hopping on Instagram to scroll through the feeds of awesome dads who are taking their kids on these amazing weekend getaways and feeling worse because I feel a melancholy that doesn't want to make me play with my kids. See what I just explained there? So I just go to things that escape me from the melancholy and actually feed it and deepen the melancholy because I feel more guilty that I'm not with my kids because I'm feeling melancholy. I have to learn a redemptive way of stepping into this struggle by coming to my kids and going, hey, daddy doesn't feel super happy right now, but I'll sit with you while you play. I may not have a lot of creative energy to dream up the same world you're dreaming up with your 18 Barbies right now, but dad's going to try. I'm just going to sit here. I'm just going to try to be present. And by, by doing that, we're acknowledging our humanity. We're saying, I'm human. I'm going to struggle. I don't know all the reasons why. Lord, help me. And Lord, help me to re-enter life and be fully present to those I love. Those are struggles. We all have so many struggles. What are your struggles? Are they keeping you from experiencing the narrow paths of life with joy? But there's a third thing that flows out of our story and our struggles, and it's actually specific sin. Uh, I remember sitting at my desk one day, feeling a wave of spirit conviction. That's one of the things the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit does. He is here, as, as the uh, Apostle John says, to bring conviction of sin. And so I felt a wave of conviction where I felt like I had done something wrong to my boss. And so I called up my boss uh, immediately and I said, hey, I feel like I've, I've done something uh, to you. Here's the situation. I made a decision without looping you in because I felt like I could do it better and I got impatient and I feel bad about it. And so will you forgive me? And very pastorally and patiently, he said, hey, I, of course I forgive you. Thanks for telling me. But he said, how about you take a little bit more time to go talk to people that are close to you and ask them to help you identify the specific reason, the specific sin here in this situation. Pray about it. Ask the Lord to search your heart. And then let's keep talking about it. Because there might be a pattern here that you're experiencing that by getting specific, you will experience greater freedom and redemption and forgiveness. And so I took some time and I began to see a pattern of pride. And I began to see a pattern of rivalry that I actually wanted this guy's job. And so I always was acting to subvert his leadership because I felt like I could do it better. And I was reading James 3 when it says that rivalries and dissensions of every kind are demonic and they ruin the unity of God's people. And when I read that, I felt, I felt, I felt, I felt grief. I felt that is when my heart got cut to the core for the first time. It wasn't when I reached out for the first time and called him. I wasn't really feeling a deep grief over my sin. I was feeling bad and I wanted to get rid of that bad feeling. And so I wanted a quick forgiveness. The deeper sin led to more awareness. But here's what deep specific sin also does. 
It allows us to experience specific grace. And if we want to go the narrow paths and deepen our relationship with our good shepherd, getting specific is going to help us experience specific grace and mercy and forgiveness. If we think of sin more vaguely and abstractly, we will think of grace and mercy and forgiveness more abstractly. When we sing the songs and listen to the preachers, we will not quite experience the depth of what Jesus is really telling us in his word if we don't want to get specific with the ways that we have grieved and offended him by sinning against him. But friends, there is a sweet freedom that comes through acknowledging specific sin, specific struggles, and specific contours of our story. And so do you know your story? Have you told it? Have you seen God in the midst of it? Are you aware of your struggles? And do you know some specific sin patterns in your life that you want to experience specific grace from this morning? And so if we had more time, we could talk about a number of different paths, right? We could talk about the path of learning the connection between work and calling and identity or the path of physical, emotional, or spiritual suffering, the path of loss, financial hardship, the path of learning contentment in the midst of fear and uncertainty. We could talk about the path of learning to lead or learning to follow. We could talk about the path of marriage or the path of singleness. We could talk about the path of being rooted to a particular place and be present. The path of speaking up with courage and the path of keeping your mouth quiet and wisdom. There are so many paths that the Lord will take us on for our good and for his glory. And if we had more time, we could talk about all of these. But whatever path you're on, I want to offer you three practical ways to step into them as we close this morning. All right? So the first way is just assess the path that you're on now or the multiple paths. Just maybe write them down as you read Psalm 23, open with a Bible. Say, Lord, what are the paths of righteousness? How, do you, how are you growing me on the narrow paths right now? Perhaps you need to assess, have, have, have you allowed the good shepherd to take you through the narrow gate of salvation? Once and for all, are, are, are you, have you experienced that beautiful uh, entry into salvation with the Lord? If not, that's your invitation this morning. Receive Jesus. Let him guide you through that once and for all narrow gate of salvation. He longs to do it. He desires for all to be saved and to go through that narrow gate. And even though many will choose to reject it, many will come through it by God's grace and through Jesus and through Jesus alone. And yet, if you've gone through that gate, what are the narrow paths that you're on now? Just assess where you are. The second thing, commit to walk with the Good Shepherd. There is this idea that, that, that certainly in sanctification, the Good Shepherd is guiding us along these paths. He's leading us down paths of righteousness. But there are a lot of scriptures, even if you have your Bibles open, in Psalm 26, verse 3. It says this, For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and listen, I will walk in your faithfulness. Look at the resolve there. The second thing here is just resolve to walk down these narrow paths. Think of Joshua. What does he say at the, towards the end of his ministry and at the end of his life? As for me and my family, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. After you assess where you are, you can resolve with the, the good shepherd's help to walk these paths of faithfulness, to walk in obedience. It's a long road. It's a narrow road but resolve to do it. Third, find your gospel posse. So I noticed your, your uh, bookstore out there has some books by Scotty Smith. 
Um, and Scotty really coined this term, this idea of, of having a gospel posse. Two or three people in your life that are journeying with you regularly and locally that know your story and your struggles and your sin and can lead and be with you in both grace and truth. We don't want a gospel posse here that's just going to lean only on grace, right? We want a gospel posse that's going to lean heavy on grace, but also heavy on truth. Hey, Dave, we see these things in your life. Do you see them? We want people who will tell us the truth because we are oblivious to so many of the paths that we're on. And so a gospel posse helps shape and form us along these narrow paths because not only are they a source of tremendous encouragement and presence and help, but they are a truth-telling posse. They are not afraid of losing you as a friend by keeping the truth from you. Better is uh, a wound from a friend than the kiss from an enemy, the proverb says. So the third thing here is find your gospel posse. Pray about it. If you don't have one, pray. That's what I began to do three years ago. My wife and I began to discuss, I need some help. Lord, bring men into my life. If you're a woman, bring women into my life, Lord. Find your gospel posse and pray for it. And, and lastly, find hope and help in the right places. Find hope and help in the right places. You know, whatever path you're on this morning, there is, there is hope. And one of the things I didn't do really well with that group of college students in my house is offer them more hope and more help. I think I laid out, I think I laid out pretty well. Uh, the narrow paths are, are going to be hard, and some of the paths that, that the Lord had taken us down, but I didn't really end with a whole, a whole lot of hope. And I wish I could, I could have that moment back so I could end it by saying, there, there is hope. There is hope for your path. We're not, we're not here as cynical Christians on the narrow path. We know we have hope and we know we have help. I'm, I may have thought back to this, this hiker who walked that narrow path. And I don't know if we have this quote on the screen or not, but that same uh, one hiker actually hiked that trail that I showed you guys earlier. And he said, although I'm not a big fan of heights, narrow trails, or being near big drop-offs, with the well-maintained or the well-marked trails and our hiking poles, I never felt uncomfortable. So I think he experienced some discomfort on the trail, but I think what, what he means and the way I interpret this, it's, it, is, it is possible to be on a difficult, narrow trail and still experience joy and peace. Hannah Hernard is one such lady born in 1905 uh, with some disabilities. She wrote a book called Hind's Feet on High Places, drawing from a passage in Habakkuk. And the whole book is an allegory, much like Pilgrim's Progress, where she outlines her journey of being a, a fearful young lady into being able to tread with the Good Shepherd on the high places of life. The, the narrow paths, high up in the mountain in, with God's presence. And all along the way, he took her all through these narrow trails of danger and difficulty, the valleys of the shadow of death, through deep darkness, with enemies all around family and friends who kept her back and wanted her to stay home and not go the, the hard trails of the narrow paths. But she knew there was something waiting for her. She had hope and she had the good shepherd there helping us. And so for Hannah, for this hiker in the canyon, for us today as sojourners on this earth, we can have hope on the narrow paths for these, these three reasons, right? One is that many have traveled before us. We can have hope because these paths, even though they're narrow, many have gone before us. The Bible is ripe with examples. Men and women, right? Daniel and David and Moses 
and Rahab and Deborah, Mary, the 12 apostles. Church history is full of examples. I commend a book titled 131 Christians Everyone Should Know. So you can study. Men and women throughout church history have gone down these narrow paths and let that encourage your faith. These paths are well marked because people are traveling them. You are not alone. Don't believe the lie that you are all alone on these paths. When you go back to work tomorrow, don't believe the lie that you're all alone. In a workplace, you might be the only Christian, but you're not alone. Even there, the shepherd is with you, and many are doing the same thing you are in other jobs each and every day. Secondly, Jesus, Jesus, remember our good shepherd Jesus went down every path. And so he's with us on these paths. He's familiar with the routes. He's gone down them before. Consider Hebrews 4.15, right? We do not have a high priest or a good shepherd who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Could we not imply from this passage that we have a good shepherd, a high priest, our faithful Lord, who is truly able to sympathize with us because he went down the same path we are going to take? He's gone down every narrow path. Doesn't a good Doesn't a good shepherd scout out a trail before bringing the sheep along? And if Jesus has been there, we can trust him. But Jesus also went down the one narrow path that you and I could not go down. The narrow path to the cross itself. The path that only he could go down. The path where the good shepherd became at once the sacrificial lamb going to slaughter as our sacrifice, our substitute, and our savior. And walking down this path, the perfectly righteous one had to face all the unrighteousness the world had to offer. And he not only faced it, he defeated unrighteousness. And because he did that, he remained perfectly righteous. And then he shared amazingly that righteousness with us. And so we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so now that righteous one who went down the one and only narrow path through the valley of ultimate evil and brokenness, surrounded by enemies, is preparing a feast for us. And so as we finish the passage, you see he's preparing a feast in the presence of our enemies because he's been there. And so, with a shepherd in front of us leading the way, preparing a feast right now on the narrow trails for us, for those who are weary, he's also the one that brings behind us goodness and mercy that will follow us all the days of our life until what? And this is the final thing, until he brings us home. And so the final hope we have is that the end is going to be worth it. The end of every narrow path on this earth is ultimately going to be worth it for those who believe in Christ, those who go through the narrow gate. Because every narrow path will bring us to the, to the city of joy, an unending forever kind of place filled with peace and joy and love. And so these are our hopes and our helps for the narrow paths. As Josh comes up to introduce communion, let's pray. Father, you promised your word will not return void. And so take out anything that has been contrary to your word or your spirit this morning. Bring discernment and wisdom to the minds and hearts of of every man and woman in this room to test what I've said according to your word. But for the things that have been true, I, I pray that you would plant that seed deeply into the hearts of the people here, that they would be encouraged that as they take a break from the, the gospel of Matthew and they, they, they are marinating on the sermon on the mount that Jesus spoke, and they're, they're getting ready to dive into the life of Daniel, that I pray that they would ponder their own life, assess where they are, and determine what path am I on? 
Am I on a path that brings honor and glory to you or, or a path that brings honor and glory to myself? Stir our hearts, lead us to repentance this morning and lead us to specific repentance so that we can enjoy specific and deep grace and forgiveness. Amen.